Awesome. Hey, what is up, guys? Welcome to Grace this morning. We are so glad each and every one of you are here today. Uh, if you are new here, I want to introduce myself real quick. My name is Jeff. My amazing wife and I, we are the youth pastors here at Grace, and I get the privilege of serving on this teaching team where I get to bring a message about once a month. Um, Jacob, I'm a little bit loud in the house swing. I just, I hear myself back and I can't, I don't want to listen to me. I listen to me enough. So, um, but today I get to bring the message. We're going to be continuing uh, our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, and so we're going to be working through there. We've been in Revelation for a while now. Uh, if you remember, we started off by doing a series on the seven churches that John originally wrote to. Uh, and so it, I'll give you a quick recap on the book of Revelation. It is a letter that was written by the apostle John to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, John was, uh, they attempted to kill John by boiling him in oil. It seems like a real fun time. Uh, they were unsuccessful. He continued to preach the gospel. And so they exiled him on the island of Patmos where uh, he was left there to die. But Jesus revealed himself to him. He gave him a message, brought him into heaven and showed him all kinds of incredible things. And so that's what we're looking at. Uh, John wrote to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Um, and we went through, we did a whole series on that. You can look at it online if you want to see each of those messages. Um, but, but he wrote directly what Jesus told him to sit to tell to those seven churches. And we believe that those were real historical churches. Uh, and that message was written for them at that time, but it was also for us here today. And also the, the churches themselves mark certain ages in history of the church age. So with that said, um, we're jumping on into Revelation today. We're at the point where uh, John is, is, is now in heaven. Uh, we, we talked about a couple weeks ago that when John entered into heaven, the first thing he's seen was the throne room of God. Uh, and he's seen uh, elders worshiping, and he's seen angels, and he's seen amazing things. And then he, uh, a scroll was brought forth, and then on that scroll was seven seals. It came out that only the slain lamb could open up the seven seals. Teresa last week talked about those seven seals. And she ended with the seventh seal, and the seventh seal brought forth the seven trumpets, which is where we're going to be today. We're going to notice as we study through this, as we study through the judgments, there are going to be uh, uh, three series of seven. There was the seven seals, there's the seven trumpets, and there will be the seven bowls. Each one brings forth the next. And so it's almost like a, a nesting doll. I asked my daughter if I could borrow this, and she said I could. Uh, but honestly, it's just really fun to play with. But... It's like this first nesting doll is, is representative of the seals. And once the seventh seal has been opened up, out come the seven trumpets. At the conclusion of the seven trumpets comes the seven bowls. And each of these uh, series of judgments um, progress as they move forward. And so... We're going to be looking today at the middle judgment, and that is the seven trumpets. And we're going to talk about that. And I'm going to talk to you about what I feel like God revealed to me this week. Before we do so, uh, I'm going to pray for us real quick, uh, and then we'll jump back into the message. Sound good? All right. Father God, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. We thank you for everything you do for us and you do through us. God, I thank you for, for everything that you've done, everything that you are, and everything that you're going to do. God, I just pray right now that you would be with me as I bring this message, Lord, that it's not my words that are heard, but it is your word, God. I pray that, that walls would be broken down here today, God. I pray that ears would be open, that, that hearts would be open, God, and that your Holy Spirit would move in. And that we would have people here today, God, that dedicate their life to you, God. That surrender their life to your calling, to your mission, to servanthood under you, Lord. We thank you for everything you do, and God, I just pray that you'd be with us uh, through this year and through everything that is happening, Father. I just pray for you to be here, Lord. 
We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So it's funny. The, uh, the longer that I've been a father, the more I realize I'm turning into my father. Anyone else? So I was, um, we, were, we were playing on the trampoline the other day with the kids, and we have the security camera. All great stories start like this. Uh, we have this security camera, and so it picks up anytime there's, uh, anytime something happens, or records like 15 seconds. Uh, and we went back and looked at the video, and like nearly every time it caught me on the camera, I was like wrestling one of the kids. I think this is just a dad thing. I don't know. Like, you just gotta, you gotta show the kids, you know, you gotta, you gotta put that papa whooping on them, I think. And, and I remember my dad doing this, like, in my, my entire childhood. Uh, it's partially probably why I grew up somewhat tough. I don't know what happened since then, but, uh, but <laughs> y'all laugh too much. Anyway, I remember my dad was always like that. He, he would, like, we would wrestle all the time, like, for no reason. We used to be in the backyard, and he'd, like, jump on me like a spider monkey. And, and at, at, at one point, he actually could do that because I outgrew him, and then suddenly his back started hurting. Uh, yeah. Right? Just saying, I call it like I see it. But it's, I, I say that because like, it's funny because we hang out with Jessica's brother and, and uh, our nieces and nephews. And the same thing, like the same thing happens. They wrestle all the time. The kids will pick at him, give him a hard time because, you know, the kids want that. They'll pick at the dad to get, get the wrestling. And, uh, and, and they'll do the same thing. They'll start picking at him. And then he'll put a pop of whooping on them. Now, they're getting a little bit bigger too, though. And he's having a little bit harder time, especially when there's like three of them. Uh, but he's still got them at the moment. But I, I've noticed I do the same things with my kids. Like, London will get home from school, and I'll be waiting behind the door, right? And she'll come out, i just grab her and throw her on the couch and start taking her. She's Dad! It's awesome. I, I don't know. I think it's just maybe a dad thing. I, I, I'm assuming I'm not in this alone uh, because every dad I've known has done this. You, just, you wrestle with the kids. And now uh, London is, is taking MMA classes, and so she's training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and boxing because I'm not raising a victim, and she's going to be able to handle herself. And... Uh, she's taking those, so now every time she learns something new, we have to try it out, right? Uh, and sometimes she has trouble, like, getting me in holds because she's got to, like, wrap her arms around, and this is because her arms are short, no other reason. Um, and she has trouble with those, but the other day she was trying to show uh, myself, Jessica, and she even pulled Shep into it, uh, this new move from, like, back control. Um, and this turned into a full hour-long wrestling match between all four of us. We're still trying to teach Shep that there's no hitting in wrestling, but he's, he's watching the wrong kind, I think. Uh, yeah. But we, uh, I, I say that to say this, that, that health, wrestling within a healthy environment like this is very healthy. It's a growing experience. It teaches kids to not be afraid of physical contact, to not be afraid of even aggression. Now, I'm not telling you, I'm not advocating for teaching your kids how to fight or to beat anyone up, but I'm also telling you not to tell, let them be a punching bag, just throwing that out there. And so I think that there is actually healthy growth that comes through wrestling, especially wrestling with a father figure. And I'll be honest with you guys, this is exactly how I felt this week as I was studying through this passage of Revelation, like I was wrestling with my Heavenly Father, right? Like I was, I was wrestling with the scriptures, like I was, I was in it, and I'm like, God, this just doesn't line up. I don't know. This doesn't seem like the character that I understand of you, God. How is this showing your love, grace, and mercy, God? How am I getting this out of this judgment? God, I just don't understand. And then my Heavenly Father took me to church, <laughs> Metaphorically, I was uh, I was in my bedroom floor, putting together this this Amazon bed that my wife just had to have, uh, and I had a few minutes alone to put this thing together because it's hard enough following instructions. It's really hard when you have two tiny kids on your back. 
And I was putting this together, and so what I did is I turned my phone on, and I just had to play Revelations 8 through 11 over and over and over. And I probably listened to this over 20 times. I listened to those three chapters, and I'm just like, God, speak to me. God, speak to me. God, God, speak to me. And finally, around like 18, because I'm really stubborn, around 18, God spoke to me. And it all suddenly made sense. And so my goal today is to reveal to you what I felt like God revealed to me through my 18th listen through Revelation 8 through 11. And so if you're studying scripture and you're like, I just don't get it, maybe you're stubborn like I am. You just need to keep rereading it until God reveals it to you. Okay? All right. So let's go ahead and jump into uh, the, the scriptures. We're going to jump right into Revelation 8 if you have a Bible with you. Uh, we're going to start there, um, and it'll, of course, be on the Sky Bible or on the app if you have any of those things. Um, we've already talked about how the, the judgments of God in Revelation, they come, um, they come just like these, like nesting dolls, that you have the seven seals. Out of the seven seals comes the seven trumpets. Out of the seven trumpets comes the seven bowls. We have these series of sevens that come. Now, what is interesting is that with each one, they grow in devastation. So first is the seals, and Teresa talked last week about with the seals, hold on, this works better when you turn it on, tech guy right there, with the seals, a quarter of everything is affected. We're going to get to the trumpets. The trumpets today, a third of everything is affected, and when we get to the bowls, everything is affected. We're going to talk about why that's important. But I believe that the, the reason we have the judgments, the reason that, that God speaks the way he does in these very end times is actually very merciful and very graceful. And we're going to get further into that. But I believe that in the judgments, God offers repentance to the people in the language they respond to best. Pain. Pain. Yeah, that's not a super joyful thing to hear. I admit. I don't love that. But it's true. Pastor Dennis has told us for years, be careful what you pray for. Be careful when you pray for revival. We want revival. We want to see lost souls come to Christ. But you know what always brings revival? Tragedy. Pain. The most hard-hearted person will cry out to God with enough pain. And God knows that. And God also knows that there's something worse than death. There's something worse than physical death. There's a spiritual death that is far worse. C.S. Lewis says it like this. We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And everyone who has watched a glutton shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can even ignore our pleasure. But pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, consciences that's a hard word, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that's where we got our title for today's message. It is a megaphone to a deaf world. The trumpets are a megaphone to a deaf world. Now remember as we dive in that the, 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 the time of the events that are taking place, as we dive into these judgments, um, I personally believe pre-trib, so I believe the Christians will be up out of here before these judgments come and happen. And so what we're talking about today will be taking place after the Christians, after you and I, those in Christ, have already been raptured up out of the here. And now the judgments are taking place after this. So there's a good chance these do not pertain to you. At least I'm praying that they don't. 
but there's a really good chance they may be pertaining to someone you love, which also means that we have to be, we have to be doing everything we can every single day to reach those that we love, to reach those around us with this gospel, because this gospel isn't just something we talk about. It isn't just of minor importance, a, a minor detail in everyday life. No, it is everything. Because one day the trumpets will sound and we will be raptured out of this world and judgment will come on this world. That is absolute truth. Okay, let's jump in. Revelation 8 verse 1. It says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. We just spoke about how when the seventh seal is opened, all of heaven stands in reverence as to what is about to happen with this coming of the seven trumpets. And so we've seen in heaven, we talked about the throne room of God, there was constant worship and there's constant singing, constant praise happening. But when the seventh seal is broken, it goes to a silence. For 30 minutes, there's absolute silence. And then we begin with the trumpet blasts. So first we're going to look at the first four trumpets. The first four trumpets are all centered on creation. So the first trumpet, Revelation 8, verse 7. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass were burned up. Now, as we read through these, I want you to think back to our study in Exodus. There's a lot of similarities to these judgments and the plagues that were brought on Exodus. This one, for instance, reminds me a lot of, uh, of the seventh plague in Egypt. Uh, whenever God rained down hail and fire on Egypt, uh, we see the same thing over again. But if you can just imagine for a moment, because I know that it's really easy to read the Bible like it's just words on a page and not picture what this event will be like. And so if you can imagine for a moment that it starts raining down hail and fire and several scholars and other people start to uh, speculate on what this could be. This could be uh, an asteroid that is broken up in the, in the whatever. I don't, I'm not here to speculate. I have my own beliefs, but I'm not here to tell you what could be and what might be and what might happen. I'm just going to here to tell you what God says will happen. And so I don't know how God's going to do it, but I know that he is absolutely going to do it and that there will be fire and hail that rain down on the earth. And what we read is that a third of all vegetation will be destroyed. Now, that sounds bad when we just say it, but think about the effects that that's going to have. A third of the entire world's vegetation destroyed in one instance. That means there are going to be fires and smoke filling every area of the world. There is going to be wildlife that dies. That's going to hurt the food chain. There's going to be a depletion of the oxygen because the oxygen-giving plants, a third of them are now going to be gone. And so the normal breath that we get to take into our lungs will now be diminished to just two-thirds of the oxygen that is on earth right now. Breathing will become harder. The entire world will fill with smoke and fill with carbon dioxide. The breath that fills your lungs is nearly poisonous to you. When, all, when a third of the world's vegetation burns up, it will be a terrible place to be. Not to mention, as humans try to go on with normal life, the limitations in the food chain, the limitations uh, in, in travel and getting things back and forth, all of those are going to be interrupted. But then we jump into the second trumpet. And it says, the second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, this feels very similar to Egypt, where the, t the Nile turned to blood and the fish inside of it died. 
again, like the plague in Egypt. But if you can imagine for a moment, now we have, first we had the land and the vegetation that are destroyed. Now we have a third of the sea, the creatures within the sea, and the boats. Y'all remember a few months back when we had those shipping delays and, and, and all that stuff got held back and suddenly, the, suddenly the, the stores were out of half the stuff we wanted? Imagine when a third of the boats in the world is destroyed. Humans will not be able to get the basic necessities that they need for life. When the water is destroyed, a lot of our food comes directly from the ocean, and a third of the wildlife is now destroyed, there's going to be a, a food shortage that follows that. There will be uh, traveling issues that happen. There will be problems with getting stuff from one place to another. Shipping will pretty much cease. There will be shortages everywhere. Again, just going and creating more and more chaos in the world. But now we get to the third trumpet, and it gets worse. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. That star was named Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. So now we're seeing that the fresh water sources in all of the world, a third of them are now bitter and poisonous. That's the fresh water. So, so far, our oxygen isn't safe. Our seas are, are no longer manageable. There are no, the half the third of the stuff is dead. And now we're seeing our fresh water supply that we would have to drink is now a third of it has turned poisonous. Then we get to the fourth trumpet. So far, we've seen land, sea, and other seas. Anyway, Revelation 8, 12. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third day was without light, and also a third of the night. Very similar to the ninth plague in Egypt where God made it dark. But if you can just imagine for a moment that a third of the sun is struck. I don't know exactly what this means, or I can't even really imagine this, but if, if a third of the sun goes out, can you imagine what that would do to, to, to the temperature on earth? Could you imagine the ecological effects that that would have on the world when a third of the sun is out and a third of the sun is out? And what we see here is we have issues that are now happening uh, in, in the heavens, that, that are now happening in the sky, that are now having direct effect. What that could do to waves, what that could do, uh, you know, our waves come from the moon, what that could do to our waves, what that could do to the temperature. I don't know. It could raise it. It could lower it. I don't, but anything like that is going to have drastic effects on life on Earth. We're seeing that each of these first four trumpets that deal with creation are creating more and more and more chaos. And it is making life on earth even harder to sustain and even harder to get through. Now, following that fourth trumpet, we see a little bit of a different scene that takes place in what John sees in heaven. So let's read Revelation 8.13. We'll talk about that for a second. He says, As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Now, I'm just, I want to talk just a, for a moment about difference in translation for a second. Because when I first, uh, I, I listened to several sermons, and then I'd read this and studied it and read in commentaries and stuff. Uh, several sermons that I listened to, they referred to this eagle as an angel. Okay. And if you have, sitting in front of you, if you have a Bible and your Bible says angel, you most likely have a King James Version or a New King James Version. So I just want to explain for a moment the differentiation. It's not that one is wrong or, or blatantly wrong or anything like that. But when the King James Version was translated, uh, they used the manuscripts that they had at that time. Since that time, older manuscripts have been found. So 
historically speaking, we always use the oldest closest to the event date when we use our translations, when we look at things in history. We use the oldest stuff we have because it's the closest to the date. It makes sense. You would, you would believe a story that my grandpa said happened in his life rather than that of his great-great-grandson. It's just traditionally thought of as more accurate. Um, and so what happens is in with the King James and the New King James, because New King James is just a rewording of the original manuscripts that the King James used, um, they use the word angel here. And this is because in the Greek, the manuscript they had uses the word angelos, which is the Greek word for angel. But the, the newer translations of the Bible, I mean, even the most, uh, the most accurate word for word, which are a little bit strenuous for me to read, like the NASB and the ESV, which are word for word, they take the exact Greek or Hebrew word and they translate it to the closest English word. They get the word uh, eagle because the word in the older manuscripts is iatos, iatos, and it translates to eagle or vulture. No one else may care. I'm just trying to make sure you know that I know the difference between an angel and an eagle, okay? Um, this is where the differentiation comes. Uh, but what I find amazing about this is that even though we have two different manuscripts, actually we have multiple manuscripts on the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's tons. But even though we have so many different manuscripts, how amazing is it that they are this close? You can literally take an ESV and a King James Version parallel Bible and hold them side by side and they are meaning for meaning exactly the same. That is how good God is that he preserved the text that well, even though it's based off two different manuscripts. Amen? The Bible has been so well preserved, and we can see this through, through tons and tons of archaeological proof, through tons and tons of study. Uh, there's a lot of apologetic evidence about, out there about how well preserved the Bible, Bible is. And so if you ever have a conversation with someone of a different faith, uh, specifically I've had these conversations uh, with people uh, of Islam, and we've had kind of these little debates and stuff, they always attack Scripture itself. But there is a lot of evidence proving that scripture has been expertly preserved. And what we have in our Bible is meaning for meaning the same as the original manuscripts. And I find the differentiation in, in the manuscripts used in the King James and in the NIV and in the ESV that it still tells meaning for meaning the same exact thing. And, and for me, that is just amazing proof of how good God is and how well the Bible has been preserved and how much we can trust what we have. Okay. So I say that to say, my Bible says an eagle, yours may say an angel. I, I find manuscripturally, made that word up I feel like, it is eagle. But also I've never seen a talking eagle. So I feel like an angel almost makes more sense, but manuscripturally it says eagle. So we're going to go with that for now. But an eagle comes over and says, whoa, 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 to the inhabitants of the earth for the three trumpets that are about to be sounded. And so most scholars call these next three trumpets the three woes. And this is where things get worse and a little bit weird, just uh, giving you the heads up. I mean, as if the fiery comets and the mountain falling in the sea wasn't weird, it's about to go a little further, okay? So let's go and start with the fifth trumpet or the first woe. The fifth trumpet brings in uh, a terrifying plague of demonic locusts, as fun as that sounds. So what we see with this fifth plague is we see that a star falls from the sky, is what the Bible tells us. A star falls to the sky, and that star has the key to the abyss. Now, most scholars believe this star is a fallen angel, and this fallen angel goes, and it opens up the abyss, and out of the abyss comes these demonic locusts that come and they, they uh, sting like a scorpion, it says, and they torture the world for five months, so much so that people cry and plead for death, but death does not come. 
That happens for five months. The only restriction they are given is that they cannot strike anyone with the seal of God. So any, uh, any follower of God during this time will, be, uh, will not be struck. Next we have is the, the sixth trumpet. And, and the sounding of this trumpet brings forth four angels that were kept at the river Euphrates for just this time, is what scripture says. For just this time, they went out with an army of tens of thousands, and they kill a third of all mankind. I'm telling you, this is where it starts to get serious. A third of all mankind. It's an insane number. Based on the current population, that would be around 2.6 billion people. Now, obviously, you have the, the Christians that are raptured out, and so I didn't account for that, so you'd have less. But still, we're talking billions of people is a third of mankind are killed in this moment. So what I want this to show you is that the judgment of God is serious, weighty, and merciful. Merciful. Now, you may be thinking, all right, I understand mercy a little bit. That doesn't sound merciful. You're telling me third of all the vegetation, third of all the seas, third of all the rivers. Now there's demonic locusts that are stinging people, and a third of mankind dies. Jeff, did you look up the word mercy? I did. I did, actually. Um, yeah, it's merciful. Remember back with me. Genesis 18. There's a scene where God stands beside Abraham, and they overlook the city of Sodom. And, and God says that he's going to destroy the city of Sodom. And Abraham says, please, please, no. If you find 50 righteous people, will you spare the city of Sodom? And God says, yes, for the sake of the 50, I will spare the city of Sodom. And so Abraham gets more bold. He says, for the sake of 40, if you find just 40 righteous people, will you spare the city of Sodom? And God says, yes, for the sake of the 40, I will spare the city of Sodom. He goes all the way down to 10. That's 10. And he says, for the sake of ten, if you find just ten righteous people, will you spare the city of Sodom? And God says, yes, for the sake of those ten, I will spare the city of Sodom. God went in, could not find ten righteous people in the city of Sodom. And everyone inside of Sodom was killed. All, 100%, not a third, not half. All. If God did that same test today in the entire world, if he could just find ten righteous people, he would spare the entire world. You wouldn't find them. There's not 10 righteous people on this entire world. We are all guilty. We have all sinned. We've all messed up. We've all fallen short. We've all rebelled against God. We've chased the passions of this life. We've worshiped the idols of this world. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. None are righteous. So by God's very standard, he didn't have to kill one third. He could have killed all. We didn't have to have the judgments at all. He could have said, that's it. I'm done. I wash my hands with them. It's over. 100% dead now. No chance of repentance. No chance of salvation. They're done. It's over. I'm done with them. God had every right. He owes us nothing. He gave us everything. And so, yeah, a third is very merciful. Because that means two-thirds is now given the chance at repentance. Two-thirds are given the chance and being spoken to in the language they understand best, and that is pain. They are now given a chance to turn back to God. So let's look at what they do in Revelation 9, verse 20. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. 
They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So the two-thirds that are left, everything they have seen, everything that has happened in the world, everything that has gone down, all the death, all the destruction, all of creation that has now been destroyed, that has been poisoned, that has been turned wrong, and they still refuse to turn away from their idols. They still refuse to turn away from their sin and repent and turn to God. They still refuse. This reminds me so much, again, back in Egypt when Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and refused to let the Israelites go. It all comes back around. You see, what we see is a broken, corrupt world that continuously chooses idols, evils, and sexual immorality over God. Even when all the signs point to repentance, they refuse to give up their luxuries and their addictions. And if I'm honest with you, you and I, who wear the title child of God, we're no better a lot of times. Is that we still chase after and refuse to give up our own sins, our own addictions, our own temptations. And we often ignore the calling and pursue our own deluded version of joy. We seek things that never could, never will fulfill us. We seek the things of this world, and we think that in those things we'll find joy. In those things we'll find happiness. In those things we will get through. In those things we will overcome. And, and for a lot of people, this can look in a lot of different ways. You seek joy in your job. You seek joy in money, in a person, in a boat, in a car, in a motorcycle, in a tree stand, in a video game. I'm not saying those things are bad. There are certainly bad things we can seek joy in. But when we think that those things are going to fulfill us, when we think that those things are going to make everything else all right, when we depend on those things to bring us joy, we are going to be sadly disappointed. And when we begin to create idols out of the good things that God has given us, it's still worshiping idols. Even when that idol's a good thing. Even when that idol's golf. Even when it's not for me, trust me. Even when, even when the idol's a tree stand, the next buck, the next fish. Even when it's money. Even when it's a job. Idols aren't just Alcohol, sex, and porn. No, no, no. Idols are anything that you choose over God. Idols are Netflix. Idols are video games. Idols are, are money. Idols are people. We've got to break this mold that idols are just this gold statue that I bow down and worship. I've never done that. That would be silly. No, but you bow down and binge watch eight hours of Netflix when you haven't opened your Bible in the last eight days. Yeah. We, 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 we bow down and play hours and hours of video games when I haven't prayed to God in the last three days. What we do is we make idols out of things that are perceived as good. There's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing sinful about it. But it is sinful when you consistently choose that thing over God. And so what have you made an idol out of? What in your life right now is an idol that you say, hey, I need to step back from this and I need to step into this? that I need to step back from that thing and I need to be spending more time with God. I need to be spending more time in scripture. I need to be spending more time in prayer. I need to be spending more time at the throne of God, giving him glory, praise, and honor. Amen. And 
we have got to make that decision and make that change every single day. It's, 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 it's a discipline. I, I, don't, I don't know. Sometimes in American Christianity, we get this idea that Christianity is easy. We need to look back at the Gospels. It wasn't easy to follow Jesus. You need to look at Acts. It wasn't easy to follow Jesus. Persecution and death was around every single corner. Following Jesus isn't easy, even though the, the, the multitudes say they're Christian. It's not an easy life. It's a discipline. But we have to choose God over the idols of this world. Stop chasing the stuff of this world. Stop worshiping idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone. Stop worshiping the idols on a screen. Stop worshiping the idols in your bank account. Stop worshiping the idols that you constantly surround yourself with. And worship God. And a lot of those things, they can be good things that are added into your life that do bring you joy. But don't worship them above God. All right. Next we're going to see John talks about the two witnesses. So between the sixth and seventh trumpets, there's a passage in, in, in chapter 11. We have these two witnesses that are sent in to prophesy for 1,260 days. And for 1,260 days, they prophesy and, and they preach and they speak about Jesus. Now, this is where we see the beast introduced because it says that these two witnesses are a torment to all of the people. You know, all those people, the other two-thirds that refuse to turn to God and refuse to repent, those people, they are a torment to them. Sounds a little bit familiar like sort of where we're at right now in culture right like Christians are being turned into the bad guys on social media it's, it's real fun to see because we like want to save babies and stuff that's crazy like it, it, I mean it the world has gotten insane lately like that, that suddenly when you show the love grace and truth of God you're you're the bigot you're the insensitive one you're the one that doesn't have love no no listen if I didn't love you I would be perfectly fine with you going to hell I tell you the truth of God's word because I love you and because I don't want to see you that go that way. I don't want you to be here when the trumpets sound. I don't want you to be here through the judgments. I want to see you in heaven with me. That's why I share the truth. That's why I share love. And yeah, 1 Peter 3.15, I do so with gentleness and respect, absolutely. But it would be unloving for me to not share the gospel with you. It would be unloving for me to not point out the wrongs that you're doing in your life. It would be unloving for me to let you continue down that road of sinfulness into a, way, a place that is away from God. That is unloving. The most loving thing I can do is point you toward Jesus. And I'll be real honest. If you don't want to hear the, the, the love and truth of God's word, you probably don't want to hang out with me. And I want to live every day of my life like that. It is that... When people talk about me, I'm like that weird Christian. He's like, oh, he's the one. He, everything, he, everything you talk to him about, it turns into a, a gospel presentation. Man, wouldn't that be an awesome compliment? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't you just love to have people say that about you? Every time I talk to him, he's talking to me about Jesus. Oh, that'd be amazing. I hope someone says that about me. Every, every, time, I, I walk in, every time I walk in and talk to him, they have the Bible open. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? That's what we should be striving for. That's what we should strive for, is that every situation, every encounter, every conversation, the gospel is presented, Jesus is in the middle, and we're drawing people to God. Because I'll be honest with you, these judgments don't sound fun. I don't want to be here, and I sure don't want my family members to be here. And I absolutely don't want my friends to be here. And I absolutely don't want the people I train in martial arts with to be here. 
And I, absolutely, I, I would say work, but that's more for you. I'm, I work at a church. I'm hoping none of them are here. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Love you. Uh, I, but I don't want anyone I know to be here. And so I need to be working every single day to accomplish the great commission, and that is to make disciples of all nations. Because time, it, I don't know how much time is left, but I know that it could be any day. It could be any second. No man will know the day nor the hour, Matthew 24. And so I need to be doing everything that I can to reach people with the gospel. Because I don't want them to be here during this. And you have loved ones in your life. You have people you know, people you work with, people you do events and things like that with that don't know Jesus. Let's be honest. We're in Crossville. Everybody knows about Jesus. That don't follow Jesus. There's a difference in knowing the story and actually following the man. Right? Everyone knows about Jesus. We're in, I, was, I was 22 before I finally admitted I didn't follow Jesus, although I knew all about him. And so we have to be doing everything that we can every single day to reach people with the gospel. We reach them with the gospel, reach them with the truth of God's word. Because there is only way and way to avoid this judgment, and that is to be in Christ. So we have these two witnesses. And their words, their prophesying is a torment to the world. And so we see the beast introduced here. And I'm not going to go too far into that. That's probably for Dennis on another day. But the beast is introduced here. And the beast actually comes and kills the two witnesses. And it says that the people rejoice. The entire world rejoices. They throw a party. They give gifts to each other. And they refuse to bury the witnesses. They leave their bodies in the city square. And they have parties around them. And then three and a half days later, God's like, JK. And he raises them from the dead. First, I think it's amazing. And I think three and a half days is significant. I don't exactly know why, but I just imagine that they're like, all right, Jesus rose on the third day. We know that much. We need to watch those bodies for three days. And like the three-day mark comes and goes. And like, we're good. And half a day later, God's like, just kidding. And they're up. And it says, everybody's terrified. They're terrified when these witnesses come up. And it says, God takes them into heaven. But then read this in Revelation eleven thirteen. 13. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake. And a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Amen. Oh, finally. I mean, a lot had to take place before they listened. But finally, they gave glory to God in heaven. Oh, how good is God? Amazing. He had to speak to them again in the language that they heard best, the language they understood best. He had to speak to them through pain, but finally they recognized who God was and they gave him glory. They gave him glory and they turned to him. This is amazing. And it finally happened. Their, their ears were finally open. Their hearts were finally open and they let God in. You see, their deaf ears were finally open and they finally awakened and turned to God. The opportunity would have never been had had God not shown mercy on the world and spoke to them through the language they understood best. The seventh trumpet, seventh and final trumpet, is a sound of hope for the Christian, but it's a sound of terror to those who are not. 1115, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever 
endeavor. The kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of God. God now reigns supreme. For the Christian, this is amazing. This is what we've been waiting for. But for the unbeliever, this is terror. What I want to, what I want to reveal to you that I learned through this study, uh, in my bedroom floor, as I listened through these passages, these chapters, 18 or more times, is that, let me see, I think it's up here. God is the same. God is the same. And that was what I was struggling with. That's what I was wrestling with God with. As I read through this, I read about the judgment. I read about the pain, about the death, about the suffering. And I just started, I, I was thinking, God, this just doesn't seem like you. This just this doesn't seem like the God that I know. And then as I read through this and as I seen the salvation at the end, I realized you've been showing mercy the whole time. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. John 3.16 reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That was true when Jesus said it. It is true today, and it is true in the judgments at the end of time. God so loved the world. He wants all to turn to him. He wants all to turn to repentance. But he knows that some just aren't listening. And so he speaks to them in the language they understand best. And that language is pain. And so the judgments, the way we see, the reason we see them grow in devastation, the reason we see them grow in devastation is because God is trying to reach people. He's trying to reach his children, reach his children with his love and tell them and bring them and draw them, open their ears, open their hearts and draw them to him. And in doing so, he's got to pull, put judgment down onto the world so that they will open their ears and listen. Yeah. You see, God is, is our creator. We've sinned against him. We've fallen short. We go back to the ten righteous people. If God were to come look at the world today, he would not find ten righteous people, regardless of what you believe about yourself. Because you could think, I'm pretty good. I do all right. I do okay. I don't, I, don't, I don't cuss. I don't drink much. And I don't, I'm better than like that dude over there. Like I'm, I'm doing pretty good. But the word of God says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, everyone, not a third, not half, all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, it says that the wages of sin is death. We are all doomed to death. We are, have all fallen short. We have all sinned. We have all made mistakes. We have all rebelled against the creator. But I love that verse. It says the wages of sin is death and there's a comma and not a period. Thank God for commas and not periods because it says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus, that although we have messed up, although we have sinned, although we have fallen short, we had made mistakes, we rebelled against God, we had chased idols made with human hands, and we had turned away from God and chased everything that we thought would bring us fulfillment, joy, and happiness. Even though we made idols of this world, we can still be saved by what Jesus did on the cross for us. We can avoid these judgments altogether by being raptured up out of here when God comes for his church. And we do that by what Jesus did on the cross. Not by our own good nature, 
not by our own good abilities, not because of what we have done or what we have said or all the charities we've worked in, all the mission trips that we went on. We're not saved by great-grandpappy being a preacher. We're not saved by being in church every Sunday. We're not saved by coming to youth group or serving on the serve team. No, no, none of that saves you. Now, I believe a lot of those are good things that comes forth out of salvation. But the only thing that saves you is faith in Jesus. Romans 10, 9 says, if you say with your mouth, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. If you would say with your mouth and believe in your heart, you can be saved today. That is the entire basis of grace. Is it's nothing that you could have done on your own. It's not your own good abilities. It's not your own goodwill. It's not your own perfection or your righteousness. It's his righteousness. And it's his blood that was shed on the cross for us. You see, the love of God that we've seen in John 3.16, we see that through the entire timeline of history that God loves his children. That God loves his children and he always, always makes a way for them to come to repentance and to come to him. He always makes a way for us to depart from sin and enter into his kingdom. And we see that all the way at the trumpet judgments. We see that all the way through that God makes a way. And so I don't care where you're at right now. I walked through those doors nine years ago. Waffle, tell me later. Not in a great place. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know anything about this church thing. thought it was weird. God didn't care. God took me where I was. A messed up 20-something-year-old and saved me. Changed my life. Changed everything. Gave me a new life. Gave me a new future. Gave me a new perspective. Gave me new hope. That abounds all understanding, and he can do that for you too. It doesn't matter where you're at, what you've been through, what you're going through, or what you've done. There is no sin that separates you from God. There is no sin greater than our Savior. And he is there for you, and he's calling you home. He's calling you home in a relationship with him. So if you would, let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. We thank you for everything you've done for us and you do through us. God, I thank you. I thank you for your son. I thank you for Jesus. That through him, by his blood, that we can be saved. That it's not, it's nothing we have to accomplish on our own. It's not our own righteousness. It's not our own ability, but it's, it's you and how good you are and what you've done. God, I just pray that if there's anyone here today that does not know you, that they've never turned from their sin and decided to follow you, God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would just be burning inside of them today, God, that that you would lead them to you, Lord, that they would know all they have to do is believe in their heart that Jesus died for them, that he is your son, and today they can be saved. God, I pray that you would draw them to you. And God, I pray that we would each and every one of us leave here, especially the Christians, Lord, that we would leave here with a passion to reach the lost, to reach the world, to reach our family, to reach the people around us with the gospel because the judgment is coming and they need to know you. God, just give us that strength to be a little bit uncomfortable to draw people to you, Father. God, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name.